Welcome to your May 4th edition of Cascadian Views. I'm here with Dan this week. We're all back from a vacation. Well, Dan and I are back from a vacation. Everybody else will be back next week. Uh, I, I guess the, the biggest news is the fallout from, uh, well, the Barr's characterization of the Mueller report and how that went down. He, uh, he came to give testimony in the Senate and uh, just thoroughly got his ass kicked. Barr to basically admit that he had uh, maybe skimmed the Mueller report, paged through it here and there. <laughs> <laughs> Not like it was important in reading material or anything like that, but it was really long, so I can understand why he might have just uh, just gone to the cliff notes on it. Yeah, and then uh, the day after his Senate hearing, Barr was supposed to appear before the House, and uh, he backed out on that, decided yeah. not to go in. Apparently because he didn't agree with the questions coming from committee lawyers, which seems like a really stupid reason to back out, but maybe that's just me. No, it's, well, I mean, shoot, you know, they're, they're definitely going to be probably just as pointed as anything, but they're not going, you can't really dismiss it so much as partisanship if it's just coming from a staff lawyer. I think that's, you know, part of the reason why when you know things like the Watergate hearings were done, they were done almost entirely with uh, questioning done by staff attorneys. And not so, to you know roll back to the dark days, but the uh, Dr. Ford hearings were done through uh, attorneys, or at least were supposed well, to. <laughs> the uh, the Republicans took over for their their female attorney pretty quickly. But that right. that was the setup, at least agreed to, was that the questions would come from the attorney. Yeah. Well, well, they were. You know, some of that was just they were scared of having to beat up on a an assault survivor in a public forum. But then, you know, Lindsey Graham showed them that, hey, here we go. We can do it, and our base will still love it. So, yeah. Yikes. There are some bad memories. Yeah. Nadler is uh, considering contempt hearings. Uh, in fact, promising them. I shouldn't mm -hmm. say considering. Uh, and it. I got into some discussions with Chris about this, uh, and to be fair, I don't mean against Chris, I just mean we talked about it a bit, uh, and I mm -hmm. really want to see the House flex their muscle on this. They have an absolute constitutional authority to arrest a motherfucker, right? Um, and this has gone all the way to the Supreme Court. If you read the group discussions with Chris, I actually uh, linked to a number of talks about this where it's... You know, the Supreme Court has said that Congress gets to arrest people for for contempt. That their their powers under the Constitution are basically unmanageable if they don't have this authority. Uh, and really, I I don't think that you could say Barr hasn't uh, been contemptuous of, of Congress. If nothing else, he was asked directly whether or not uh, he was aware of any concerns Mueller had with uh, Barr's summary. And he said no. And we learned this week that Mueller, in fact, did have some concerns and sent a letter to Barr that he received before that question outlining those concerns. Right. They were more or less contemporaneous. And so even with that in hand, he went ahead and lied. I believe that was to House Judiciary a few weeks ago. Uh, yeah, so that's... I think the case can easily be made that this is a uh, member of the administration who's in contempt of Congress and who is trying out some extremely novel, this administration is trying out some extremely novel arguments for why they can't be held accountable to Congress at all. 
Uh, they've been kind of pushing this cockamamie theory that Congress can't compel testimony unless it's pursuant to some legislation, which comes completely ex nihilo, absolutely out of nowhere. It was you know pulled from pulled from Trump's ass. But you know if the administration is going to be hitting hitting things, you know going that hardball, you know the House needs to hit back just as hard. There's no way that they can let this slide. <laughs> The the House does have its own enforcement arms. The the Office of the House Sergeant at Arms. You have a staff of I, I believe the last time I looked this up, like a year and a half ago, it was eleven people. So mm-hmm. it's it's not like, you know, it's the FBI or something on this. Right. But they they do have the Capitol jail and they do have a sergeant at arms and they are completely able to lock people up for contempt of Congress in their own jail through their own law enforcement staff or power enforcement staff. Yeah, uh, I, I really want to see this happen. I, I mean, Barr is, at this point, laying the groundwork for a a vision of the United States government that I frankly don't recognize. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a very kind of 19th century level of, you know, interbranch conflict. But I mean, that's that's the way this administration is headed. And that's the path they want to go on because they're frankly trying to protect the president from responsibility for a bunch of crimes. We don't and, actually have to go as far back as the 19th century to find a time when they use this. The, uh, mm-hmm. the last major arrest I can see was in 1924 in the aftermath of the Teapot Dome scandal. There's, oh. you know, going back into the book for you. They arrested the brother of the former attorney general uh, by sending the deputy sergeant arms to his house in Ohio. And uh, the Supreme Court totally said that was fine. Wow. All right. Well, hey, that's even from the 20th century then, so I'd say we're good to go. Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's been a few decades, but it's not like, you know, the Wild West days. That That's yeah a recognizably modern America. You know, that, right. That's about the time the New Deal was going through. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll you know, we'll see what the uh, you know Kavanaugh-fied uh, Supreme Court will do with it. But you know, I think, uh, I mean, we're getting to a point where you know, if John Roberts wants to maintain any semblance of his reputation as some kind of institutionalist, he's going to have to start getting on the record in some of these cases and stand up for what remains of the rule of law. I, I don't, I don't think he can or the court can shut it down literally the second act congress ever did in this country number two the Mm -hmm. second thing they ever did was establishing the the office of the sergeant in arms and giving him authority to arrest people that is house rule two that is the second piece of text that house ever passed in this country and like i said the supreme court has blessed this repeatedly i mean you're not just talking about one bad decision this isn't uh the what's the the tech case I'm thinking of the famously uh, bad one, Frederick Douglass. Yeah, well, no, it's uh, da, 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 Dred Scott Dred or Scott. There we Korematsu, go. Yeah. some of the big ones. It isn't a single Bush bad decision. Galore. There is an entire field of Supreme Court law built on this. I, it, it's dozens of decisions that have all said this is totally cool. I, mm-hmm. I don't know how the court could honestly overturn that. You know, well, they were wrong for 200 years. Yeah. It doesn't really seem like an argument that flies. It, it shouldn't. It absolutely shouldn't. You know, I'm, I'm with you there. Uh, 
Nah, I'm not going to take us into the you know total legal realism and you know pessimism here. You know, I think we we get up and we fight, and I think that's the most important thing right now. I mean, I I'm very anxious about you know just the recent activity of the court and their predisposition to ignore a whole lot of precedent. But I think we can't really be worried about that at the moment. It has to be a matter of this is a constitutional responsibility that's being presented to Congress and they need to start acting on it. And for fortunately they are, I mean, like you said, Nadler is setting up the case to, you know, hold, you know, bar in contempt and bring a number of important figures in for testimony. I think, you know, most importantly, you bring in Mueller himself. I think you bring in a lot of the key witnesses that, uh, you know, made the case or, you know, ex you know, at certain points, said that they directly disobeyed the president's orders to commit crimes. You know, Don McGahn is the one that come jumps out most immediately to me out of uh, people mentioned in the Mueller report who were directed to commit some kind of obstructive act. So, yeah, bring them, make them testify, get them you know, into little, you know, you know, 30 second YouTube clips that can be shared all over social media saying, you know, exactly what crimes the president told them to commit <laughs> and how they responded to that. And I think we could really possibly move the needle on public opinion on this and build the case. You know, even if Republicans in the Senate aren't going to be responsive, you know, it's only politically damaging if we don't lay the groundwork to get the people on our side. That. That's something I've I've been struggling with myself. There's a lot of time I just I feel like if you don't get it by now, you don't get it. Like you're, you're never going to. Which yeah, is a little well, disheartening. Most people aren't going to read a 400-page report, even if it's been chopped to shit by the attorney general's redactions. I mean, so, the 10-star report was a bestseller. Yeah. Well, sure. It yeah. Was a 9/11 report, for that matter. And, and and the Mueller report is also going to be, but you know it takes you know only what a few million copies to I don't think even that many to top the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, I was going to say if you sell you know, like five hundred thousand, you're probably in the top three. Exactly, but you get a viral video that uh, you know, hit you know tens of millions in you know matter of days. That's a much bigger deal. It doesn't really encompass as much as you know four hundred million no. report good though. Soundbite culture, no. who've been slowly, you know, skidding towards since Lincoln. Yep. Well, we're here. I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have a I have a whole rant about that. Lincoln was the first politician to make heavy use of paragraphs in his uh, his public works. Before that, it was mostly prose, unbroken, unmetered poetry, and mm -hmm. the, the paragraph allowed you to start chopping stuff up and you know excerpting it in newspapers and whatnot much more easily. Hmm. Yeah. Hadn't really thought of Lincoln that way, but yeah, I guess we, he's certainly one of the first presidents whose speeches and communication with the public we've got any kind of uh, you know popular yeah, yeah. record of. The, the paragraph itself was actually fairly new at the time. The first major work that actually used it was uh, Moby Dick, which also coincidentally was the first you know great American novel. So there was a lot of, hmm. in fact, it was the first great novel kind of period before that they'd been books of prose uh, the right paragraph enabled the novel and that was an american art form and we kind of you know really took under wing just like we would jazz a century or two later 
little history lesson for people who don't yeah. care about anything like that. Get the culture in there with the politics. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the other big news in national politics that doesn't have to do with Trump is uh, we had a long expected entry into the Democratic primary. That's right. Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado is now running. <laughs> Michael Bennett and Steve Bullock. So this week has yeah. just been. Is there. Um, I think there's somebody riches. I forgot. Oh, yeah. Joe Biden is in the race now. Who's that again? Nice. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> he's the guy we're going to be stuck <laughs> the guy we're going to be stuck with so we got to start getting used to it now <laughs> he as expected all sucked almost all the oxygen out of the room yeah. he has skyrocketed up in the polls uh largely at the expense of bernie uh -huh. um, bernie's the only candidate who really seems to be shedding support at that sort of like serious level that enabled this 20 point rise in the polls for biden from 26 to like 48 or so to be fair i mean bernie was one of the few candidates who had a significant amount of support to be shed yeah. there was him there was you know kind of minor boomlets for you know harris for Buttigieg, and then everyone else in various levels of low single digits so yeah he's the only one who could stand to lose yeah Mayor Pete has had kind of a sustained boomlet. It wasn't really like a one-week thing. It's been a slowly building couple months. Yeah. Uh, well, I think he really started taking off at the end of February and all through March. He was slowly working his way into third place. Biden comes into the race just absolutely dominating. Uh, roughly around 50% of the electoral vote, or not electoral mm -hmm. vote, excuse me, of the electorate in most of these polls that I'm seeing. Uh, which would, I mean, just absolutely crush the field. His favorable, unfavorable rating has not uh, significantly changed outside of the margin of error since December, which seems like the creepy Uncle Biden uh, did not really hurt him, and I don't really know how I feel about that. Uh, I think it... Mm -hmm. I, I've got some... Uh, I've got some pretty negative feelings, at least about how it's been deployed. You know, I I think his behavior is pretty inappropriate, but I mean, the internet is trying to turn him into a pederast, which you know is not really going to resonate with the Democratic electorate. But it's exactly the kind of stupid thing that's going to take off like gangbusters in the general election. You know, I, I'm. Maybe maybe I'm being overly pessimistic. Uh, I mean, I was thinking the one thing that Biden's really got going for him that Hillary Clinton did not is the press doesn't hate him like she did. They like they did with her. So they actually kind of love him. They do. They're you know actually you know they're you know, I think for the first time ever, uh, Bernie Sanders is getting some pretty significant negative press and. Some of it's pretty unfair, but for the first time he's getting it. You know, he didn't see a whiff of it in 2016, but now he's getting beaten on pretty regularly. Um, uh, I think, you know, that's the sort of thing that just would not have happened for Clinton. I, I think yeah. the press loving him isn't necessarily anything personal to, to Biden. One mm -hmm. thing I learned doing the shooting tracker and relentlessly exploited is that uh, if you can do a reporter's job for them, you can almost always get them to run with whatever you want. Like, if you, if you package up the story with a nice, neat little bow on it, 
give them the quotes and all they need to do is put the filler in that will get the story printed nine times out of ten mm-hmm. biden's personal story has this amazing whether it ends up being a failure or a redemption it has this amazing arc going back to the death of his son um and he promised on his son's deathbed that he would run for president he made this personal promise to his son who was dying of cancer and ultimately in a very long and tortured process decided not to get involved in 2016 and sat it out and let clinton and sanders fight it out and he's never really been okay with that decision and now he gets to turn around and kind of try and fix it that is compelling coverage that that is doing the reporter's job for them you have a story perfectly packaged that makes for engaging readership engaging viewership whatever your your medium is biden is a candidate who is incredibly easy to cover and that is one of the big reasons why the press just loves the shit out of them yeah it's easy to do um i don't want to Totally go SJW here, but he's also a white guy, uh, genial, you know, who's got what uh, he's kind of packaged as a hard scrabble background. I think he was, you know, fairly middle class, you know, growing up, but, uh, you know, certainly he's, uh, you know, I think one of the things you can say about him is that he hasn't gone out of his way to make himself wealthy during, you know, this very long public service career he's had. He's been a senator since. 1973, I want to say. So ran for president in '88. Which, yeah, you know, should really clue you into how old he is. Yeah, well, yeah, he's extremely old. I mean, he's you know just slightly younger than Vernon himself. So you know, be an octogenarian, you know, very early in his first term. You know, he he would, I think. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure he would be older than Reagan was on his last day going in on his first. So he would be the oldest president we've had on day one, if elected. Which makes me nervous, you know. <laughs> Reagan yeah, makes me nervous 73 about nominal... years old when he was elected. Right, I was thinking when he went out of office, so I guess he must have been... 81? Yeah, so close. Yeah. I guess he wouldn't be the oldest president on day one, but it would be very He'd close. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully he get there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Biden <laughs> is also running a very traditionally democratic campaign. He is mm-hmm. uh, very heavy into labor, yep. which has sparked some some ire. The firefighters union endorsed him day one, mm-hmm. uh, and Trump just went on a Twitter tirade about that. Called them a dues sucking union and encouraged uh, firefighters to dump them. So. Well, uh, I guess if he if Trump wants to go after labor like that, I think that that gives us a better shot in the upper Midwest, I'd say. So, <laughs> so let, let him do it. Let let him attack firefighters and see how well that does for him in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin. There was also an interesting development in uh, at least one of the polls I read. I didn't dive too deep into the cross tabs of the, mm-hmm. the other ones. I believe the Daily Caller had a poll out showing largely the same top line numbers. But uh, Biden's base does not seem to be who you would think the old white guy running the Democratic Party would be. His numbers are significantly better with women and minorities than they are with yeah. white voters and men. Even, even self identified Democrats. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I could see that, you know, it's, 
you know, one of the things that's uh, led him into this race and I think is going to propel him more than anything else is Obama nostalgia. You know, at least, you know, close relationship. You know, he's the person in this race who is most closely identified with Barack Obama, and Barack Obama is the most popular person in the Democratic Party. So I think that gives him a good entrance with, you know, rank and file Democrats. And when you get down to it, rank and file Democrats, the most loyal voters in this party are women of color. Yeah. So that's who Biden's going to appeal to. With a a field of a plethora of candidates uh, for both voters of color and women. And Mm -hmm. in the case of people like Kamala Harris, both. Right. Um, he's he's polling a clear majority of both women and minority voters. Yeah. Even more than the rest of the field combined. Yeah, and if those candidates don't find a way to break through, I mean, they're going to be out by the time South Carolina comes around. I think there's, you know, that that's really got to be the base for a candidate like Kamala Harris or Cory Booker or when you get down to it, probably Elizabeth Warren as well. If they can't, or I think any candidate, any successful Democratic candidate is going to have to break through and pull close to majority support with African-Americans and particularly African-American women. I mean, that's what undid Clinton in 2008 was uh, Obama eventually won over people of color. They weren't with him initially. He had to win Iowa first, but then he did. And there it was. So that I guess that is the cautionary tale then for Biden himself is if someone else breaks through, you know, he could certainly lose that support as well. But so far, no one's showing any sign of doing that. Yeah, I, uh, I'm really reevaluating Harris. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I know we've talked about this a couple of times before, but I, I thought pretty clearly Harris had a ticket to the convention. She at mm-hmm. least had a ticket to a Super Tuesday. She was polling... Like two thirds of the vote in California, she was up at like sixty-five percent of the California vote. California yeah. is going to award somewhere between ten and fifteen percent of the total delegates available in the entire Democratic nominating process, and it's going to do it on Super Tuesday. Mm-hmm. I I thought for sure, whatever discussion leads up to that through New Hampshire, through Iowa, Harris wasn't doing. Harris didn't have yeah. to do anything. She was sitting on that stash of delegates. And leaving Super Tuesday, she was going to be one of the, the you know, number one or number two in the field in total delegates and force her way into the conversation. And then that's just it. That's the race from that point mm-hmm. on. Uh, with the numbers Biden's polling, I don't think she's going to be able to do that. I, I, to be clear, I'm, I'm not sure she's going to lose California yet, but she's going to at least be splitting those delegates. She's not going to be taking you know, all of them, which yeah. is what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I don't think any of us, well, we, we, we'd all seen the polls, you know, even going back, Biden was certainly a plurality leader, but it was always pretty close between him and Bernie. I mean, this is a pretty meteoric rise after a very short time of getting in the race. And that really changes the dynamic because a lot of these other scenarios, 30 points in some, like, I think there was, uh, uh, what was it? The Harris poll out today had Biden 44 uh, Sanders 14 and Harris at nine. So, I mean, that, that's a better poll for her than I've seen for a while. And that's, you know, a nationwide poll, but yeah, I mean, third place has been kind of this, uh, rotating 
uh, rotating seat. You know, I've seen you know some polls with Warren up there. Actually, the one Warren's had a clear was, upward trajectory the last couple of yeah. weeks herself. There was that shocker that had her ahead of Sanders. That uh, I think it was the Quinnipiac that had her just one point ahead of Sanders. But that's definitely better than she's done in a long time. And the uh, the wake of 2016, there was some bad blood between the Warren camp and the Sanders camp, which had, you know, once been kind of joined at the hip. Like Warren was mm-hmm. considered a Sanders protege in a lot of ways. And uh, mm-hmm. there was a falling out over her decision not to endorse and whatnot. Yeah, well, she stayed neutral. And, well, I think I think she pissed off people on both sides, frankly, because, you know, there are more than a few Clinton people that, I follow and, you know, pay attention to what they say. And they didn't like that either, that, you know, she wasn't on either side until the very end. So, yeah, that yeah, that's the tough situation to be in, having made some enemies in both camps. And that definitely leaves the field open still for, you know, a more unifying figure, which for the moment at least is back to Biden. I mean, I think he's, he, he's somebody – Almost everybody can agree on, at least, even with some reservations. So unless somebody builds up, I think, a more positive message uh, and a more inspiring message, he's going to be the person to be. Let me ask you this. Um, Obviously, everybody running for president would like to be president, I assume. Mm -hmm. How much of the field do you think is realistically auditioning for a cabinet job? I would say... Any of the white guys who announced in the last month, so I think most Booker of these too. Booker, nah, I, th- I think Booker's in it for real. Yeah, I think no, most... I think he's in it for real, but I think he ends up at the end of this process as Secretary of like Housing and Urban Development. Yeah, somewhere in there, probably if he wants it. Uh, but yeah, I think I think any of the ones that the ones that got in early are the ones going for real. You know, the ones that actually are trying to get it and trying to win. So that's you know, Warren, Harris, Gillibrand, Castro. I mean, they were all running and running for real. They're all kind of smashing up against the rocks right now because the field is massive and there's, you know, just not much room for anybody to get a handhold at least. You know, the, the debates could change a lot of this. You know, nobody's really seeing much directly from the candidates we've got a million town halls but they're you know at most you know a few hundred thousand people are paying attention to any of them i think the really the top rated ones you're usually like you know i think harris has you know done the most popular ones but that viewership still tops out at you know maybe a million people at any given time so people aren't paying that much attention yet and so the debates might change the dynamic a little bit but yeah um Harris is running for real. You know, I think Beto's running for real. Uh, I don't really know what to make of Buttigieg. Uh, I'm not sure he started out running for real, but uh, getting more press attention tells me that you know he's probably become more in it for real. I think Beto ends up in the cabinet too. Uh, I don't think he's happy with the House seat anymore. He wants a national no. office. Yeah. Well, I mean, otherwise, where does he go? I mean. The other option for him would have been to run against Cornyn this year. Cornyn's a worse race to run than the one against Ted Cruz. Cornyn's not going anywhere. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, that uh, that one got even harder. Well, I don't know. Uh, actually, I've seen some con- con- contrafactuals 
that uh, Castro was not the uh, top candidate that they had for the race and that the DSCC is actually uh, banking more on MJ Hagar, who had that uh, nice uh, viral ad when she ran against, God, which district was she running in? Uh, she didn't win, but she impressed a lot of people and raised a lot of money last year running for the House. Let's see here. So, yeah, she's in for the Senate, and I think she's the DSCC's choice on that one. I just don't think Cornyn's going anywhere. He hasn't pissed off his own base to the extent Cruz has. And Texas is still a state where if you have the Republican base, you can win an election. Yeah. And, you know, the normal normal vote turnout is still going to be, you know, a solid Republican turnout, if not an overwhelming Republican turnout. And it's getting better, but still, you know, Beto probably got as close as the Democrat is going to get and he got for really at least the next close. decade. Yeah, I, was, I, I don't want to cut him short. Yeah, 3%. Yeah, extremely close. Uh, but, yeah, you know, so a swing that's... of a point and a half would have swung mm-hmm. that his way. Yeah. Uh, we'll do a brief international stop before our local stories. Uh, I've been following Brexit a lot mm-hmm. for no reason. I'm not British. It doesn't really affect me, but our politics are ridiculous, and watching somebody else's ridiculous politics is just a little bit less soul-crushing for me. Uh, So on the table for them right now is a a rather lengthy delay in Brexit until October, and if they don't get some shit together in the next couple weeks, they will be voting in European elections, which everybody thinks is a farce because they're supposed to be leaving, and these elections are for like five-year Uh, With that said, the majority of England and all of Northern Ireland had local elections last night, which was largely a referendum on the Brexit deal. Uh, If you were a big name in British politics, you had a bad night last night. (laughs) I'll just put it that way. Um, The Conservatives got absolutely smacked. They lost a total of 1,300 local council seats. Uh, They lost something like 45 separate local councils altogether. Their worst defeat was, I believe, they lost 33 councillors in one council. Uh, Yeah, Labour only lost 82 total, but that kind of undersells it a little bit. Uh, Labour picked up a lot of seats in the southeast, which had been a heavily conservative area. Uh, They Mm -hmm. lost their heartland. They, They lost the north of England. Uh, mm-hmm. which was where the organized labor movement had built. That's where the coal mining towns are. That is labor's bread and butter. Uh, they lost hundreds of seats in the, the north of, of England. They picked up a lot of former conservative seats, so their their overall losses don't look quite as bad, 82 down. But in terms of where the support is, it, it radically changed the map. Uh, you, so, so who did pick up in the north? Was that the Lib Dems, or was that... That was some of the Lib Dems. It was mostly the Independents and a few of the Greens. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, the Greens had a wonderful outing. In fact, they, they tied the record for their best British election ever. They picked up huh. 194 local council seats. Uh, the Lib Dems picked up 700. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they just went absolutely crazy. Most of theirs were in the Southeast, too, which had been their former stronghold. They were really decimated by that coalition government. I mean, they went from polling yeah. 19%, 20% of the vote to polling about 7%. <gasps> they, mm-hmm. they were just swept out. In fact, at one point, they were down to like five MPs yeah. uh, in Parliament. They, they came roaring back in a big way. And also, 
independent candidates picked up 23% of the seats available last night. 23%. Uh, they picked up a total of 662 seats. They took over a number of councils, a couple dozen, uh, are now in the hands of independent groups. Uh, not all of these independents are going to be organized with the quote-unquote independent group in Parliament. That was a cross-bench uh, section of MPs that had pulled away from both Labour and Conservative to start a kind of third-way party on Brexit, uh, mostly going towards the second referendum. Um, but I have to imagine most of the independents are, in fact, allied with that group. Nothing else really explains this yeah. massive upswing in, in votes for independence. But yeah, no, they they are statistically, in fact, if you count all the independents together, the largest office holders in uh, local elections. In That's so strange, though, that the North is where labor really took their hit. Because my, yeah, again, this is, you know, it's a foreign country. My understanding is pretty limited. But what my rough estimate of what it was is that, you know, labor has been kind of hamstrung on Brexit, partly because uh, they've got a fairly pro-Brexit, you know, plurality at least, if not even plurality, but a large, a large minority within the party is pro-Brexit, and that's pretty situated up in the labor heartland in the north. So it's kind of weird that that's where they would be taking the punishment so heavily from. Yeah, no, but, uh, in fact, the north voted to leave. Uh, yeah by by a fairly decent amount and that's where they they've had their biggest hit from yeah it, it's over huh. brexit basically both the conservatives and labor just got absolutely smacked around by leave right. voters mostly interesting because they're they're i guess because they're you know lousing it up i mean yeah that that makes it very strange but then you know again you've got the lib dems who are probably the only party that's you know morally unambiguously you know, pro remain, and they were also picking up elsewhere. So yeah, and they uh, and like I said, they recovered basically their entire heartland. We we got yeah. them back to the point before they were just completely decimated. Yeah, interesting. Wow, I, I no idea where things are going next. And <laughs> yeah, Ian Duncan Smith, strange... the former leader of the Conservatives, have called on Theresa May to resign. Uh, <laughs> I really don't think she's going to make it out of this. I mean, she lost 1,300 she'd, seats. She'd offered to resign, I thought, a while back. So yeah, it's like she's, if they'll fine, approve her plan. Yeah. <laughs> she, she has offered to resign uh, to the conservatives who want her head on the condition that the last thing she does as prime minister is pass her plan. The and she will sail off into the sunset. <laughs> And leave somebody else to deal with the mess away from the United Kingdom because the whole thing is going to collapse. Yeah. Oh, oh that's it, beautiful. It was the largest loss of seats in the local election for a governing party in, I'm pretty sure, since they kept records. The BBC Good. says in 250 years, but I just don't think they know farther back than that. So, do they have parties that far back? <laughs> it is, it is an unprecedented historical level shellacking for the Conservative Party, and Labour didn't really do too much better. No, well, I mean they almost held Pat, but yeah, because they're frankly they've got no more their hands aren't any cleaner than the Tories are. I mean, yeah, it was Cameron's stupid idea to do it in the first place, but uh, 
Corbin's just been a total moral shit show on the issue. So, yeah, they all deserve it. You know, go liberal Democrats, frankly, because the rest of them have just completely shit the bed. Yeah. Um, if these the the BBC hired an outside analysis firm, if these votes in these local councils uh, were extrapolated to national level votes, it would mean that the liberal Democrats would have picked up about 22 percent of the vote, which matches wow. their high in a national election, which was the election before, 2010. Yeah, yeah, before they went into uh, coalition with the Conservatives. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So well, <laughs> politics could always be worse. It makes America look better. Yeah. yeah I'm. I'm kind of frankly uh, interested to see how this independent group, the the TIG, as British mm -hmm. media calls them, does in the next parliamentary elections. They they could honestly end up in a, a governing coalition here. They're going to be, well, I mean, if these results were reflective of national votes, they would be the largest mm -hmm. group in parliament. I mean, yeah, aren't they basically like labor remainers without a home? So, yeah. And and conservatives. Uh, Some conservatives. Yeah, yeah. Their, their first batch of nine members, the one who really started it out, was uh, seven labor, two conservative. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and all of them wanted a second referendum. That was that sure. was their biggest complaint. Was yeah. we need a second referendum, right? And nobody else is moving for that. So yeah, I guess they had to stake it out on their own to actually get some voice for that. Mm. Wow. All right. All right, we'll uh, we'll turn local now for a little bit. Uh, I guess we'll start in Portland and we'll go to Washington because the more consequential mm -hmm. stuff happened up there. But uh, mm -hmm. we had some uh, some May Day riots here in Portland. It wasn't anything like uh, the riots of yesteryear, uh, the heady mm -hmm. days of 2017. Uh, but we had uh, Patriot Prayer show up. Uh, in fact, in one especially notable incident, uh, they went to a bar hosting a post-May Day uh, get-together for, you know, the, the revelers, the people protesting things. Uh, it's... Uh, the Cider Riot is the name of the bar. It's well known for helping various leftist organizations and really encouraging that sort of community engagement. Patriot Prayer showed up, started pepper spraying people on their outdoor deck, uh, <sighs> started a huge brawl. Uh, just, I don't know, dozens of people were injured. Uh, about 20 right-wing protesters, uh, including Gibson, started the fight. The owner of the bar is suing Gibson for, uh, for a million dollars. I mean... Good luck. I don't know exactly how much you're going to get out of that, but nice to see somebody making an effort. Gibson is our favorite Washingtonian around here. Oh. He comes over the bridge every now and then from his shithole in Vancouver to uh, start some shit. Yep. Yeah. You, you're making us claim it, but yeah, I guess, you know, Van Tucky, it's still technically, yeah, still technically back, Washington. We're tired of him <laughs> in this goddamn city. Uh, let's just send him all the way north to Canada. Let's. <laughs> nobody sure wants him. Maybe across yeah. the border to Idaho. That's still part of the Cascadia. Yep. Uh, and th that was really it. There, one of our group members actually, Jessica. She, uh, she observed some wonderful people giving Nazi salutes over a freeway overpass. Mike Bivens on uh, Twitter, who's a local freelance reporter, also has videos of the incident she saw. Uh, he was at the same one. Just, you know, your usual white power group <sighs> bullshit. Uh, they just, they want to stick their nose and stir shit up. Yeah, everybody in Vancouver agrees with them, so they got to do something. Yep. Ugh. 
Not to, you know, shit on Vancouver if any of Well, like, that's... But you that's could be living in the better Vancouver up in Canada. Uh, yeah, well, no, you can't because it's too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> An apartment's like $5,000 a month. <laughs> All right, Dan, how about some good right. news from Washington? I We've hear uh, your legislative session wrapped up. It's it's hard to choose, but yeah, the big one, you know, we got a budget through this year. Uh, the headline there is they fixed a lot of the stuff that's been simmering for a long time, or at least potentially has. Uh, yet another fix to uh, education passed. Uh, this time it's allowing local school districts to go in and raise the funds to cover the gap that was, you know, created by their McCleary fix from 2017. So we'll see how that shapes up. Uh, the big headline bill that passed this year is a public option. So what we were hoping to get with the Affordable Care Act, we are going to have a here in Washington State. Take that, Our, Joe Lieberman. That's right. We finally got it here. Uh, so we are seeing what can be done at least short of some of the more ambitious local proposals we can at least find ways to fix what we have ahead of us and find other ways to make health care available for those who don't get it either through their employer or through the government if medicaid uh some pretty ambitious uh targets for uh reduction of use of uh, fossil fuels over i want to say the next 15 years, so within more or less that whole Green New Deal timeline, uh, phasing out or I guess getting to completely carbon neutral energy sources uh, for, uh, I guess, all energy production within the state. So I guess that doesn't, you know, that leaves kind of consumption and importation, but, you know, Washington is also a net exporter of energy anyway. So entirely carbon neutral by 2030 would basically cover everything that uh, is used within the state. Uh, you guys are a major source for shipping, though. I have to imagine it doesn't account for that. No, I, well, I mean, that's going to be, you know, hmm. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I can't, I don't think it does. I think it's mostly, mostly for uh, energy used by buildings and uh, other things like that. So, uh, you know, areas to charge your electric car but you'll still be able to get you know gasoline at a pump yeah. yeah it's not like they're banning planes as some would make you believe no no it's yeah. it's it's you know, again you know energy used by buildings which is still pretty substantial but uh it's also i think uh we're pretty far along anyway i think most of this state is actually using either uh, hydroelectric or natural gas. So. Yeah, it's, um, I can't remember if it's a plurality or a majority, but uh, hydroelectric is the lion's share of yeah. the power in the Northwest. Um, and then, you know, enough with this fluff. How do they come down on the real issues like dwarf tossing? Dwarf tossing is still legal, uh, but hey, here's one that's good for you. They did pass. Uh, permanent daylight savings time. Yes. Uh, it's going to require a waiver from the federal government, but we do have it passed here. So we'll see if that can... Why would sure they what... decline a waiver for that? Because Trump's a dick. You know it. He, he, Trump he doesn't probably... like it either. He used to tweet about this in like 2008. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, that'll be something. It'd be nice. Yeah. 
So this is daylight savings time is an idea so dumb even Trump knows it's stupid. That yep. is your tagline right there. <laughs> Careful, that'll make it more popular. Yep. All right, I got to go uh, take care of our sick cat now. Thanks for joining sure. me, Dan. Uh, we'll be Good back be with back. something approaching a full cast next week. All right. Have a good one. Later. Bye.